0: Hey, deserving listeners, a lot of you have enjoyed the episodes in the past in which we've talked about cults with a guest on the show, a frequent guest on the show, John Atak. And John Atak has introduced me to a lot of interesting people, and including Ira, who is with me today to talk about some interesting things, a lot of different things that we'll get into. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Ira, please introduce yourself to Podcast Land.
1: Well, my name is Ira Chaliff. I have been a resident of the greater Washington, D.C. area for about 35 years. A lot of my work has been with Congress and with government and the power relations between elected officials and their staff or political appointees and, the, and their staff. My work has to do with the relationship between individuals who are in a leader role and those who are in a follower role. How do you have the most productive, mature relationships between the two roles and where can they go wrong and how can uh, we help prepare people to be more effective in those roles and um, to make sure that ethical behavior is a norm in those roles.
0: Interesting. So, how can they go wrong? Leadership and follow.
1: Oh, oh, oh. ah, let me count the ways. <laughs> well, you know, Kirk, we, we could start with we could start with Lord Acton, um, the British Lord who observed that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely, that, so let's be clear about that. Power doesn't necessarily corrupt, but it tends to corrupt. And corruption doesn't just mean, you know, hand in the cookie jar. It can mean a corruption of the way we relate to the people below us. Um, there is the king's disease, where the king starts to believe that anything he thinks is reality until a young kid comes up and, to the emperor and says, you know, hey, he's got no clothes. But meanwhile, all the sycophants around the emperor were... Uh, telling him how beautiful his clothes were. So we have those those kinds of uh, distortions that can occur anytime we have an authority relationship.
0: Right. And how might that apply to our world today in our American society?
1: Well it applies, you know, both at the grand scale and and, and the very small scale. So for example I, I like this construct that, uh, you know, most of us work in hierarchies, not all of us. Some of us are very independent, but many of us or most of us, uh, either we or our significant others, etc., do find themselves working in hierarchies. Now, hierarchies aren't themselves a problem because there's a certain functionality between knowing who has the ultimate authority to sign off on a... Million-dollar project or a new hire etc. But there's a distinction between hierarchical structure and hierarchical relationships The the difference is hierarchical relationships are the unwritten Unspoken rules that we tend to carry around with us. Where do we learn these rules? We learn them in childhood Um, if we don't learn how to respect legitimate authority and how to uh, conform to the rules in the kindergarten, -kindergarten, pre-kindergarten, hockey team, whatever, uh, we have a big problem. So there's a functionality about learning to respect authority and to conform where it's appropriate to. However, uh, sometimes authority is wrong and unfortunately, sometimes authority is malevolent as we see with child predators. So um, we have to find a better way as we acculturate uh, people to help them distinguish between uh, productive, positive authority, and authority is not necessarily venal, but they're just wrong, and we have to be able to speak up, stand up, et cetera. So when you move this early childhood conditioning, which is very powerful, almost regardless of what culture you grow up in. You then tend to bring that into the workplace and there are things, uh, ways that you talk to your superior that are perhaps overly deferential at times and if you are uh, in the boss role, you may talk a little bit condescendingly to the people under you. How do we start to make this a more conscious relationship where ideally we are working adults to adults, professionals to professionals, each in service of whatever the mission of our organization, our company, our job is.
0: Yeah, I really like that. So one of the things that I am frequently uh, uh, frustrated with is that as I'm teaching my students in my program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm supervising, uh, you know, novice interns, I find that on some level they have to understand my quote unquote authority because i could flunk them or i could what we call gatekeep them and keep them out of the profession if i found that they were unethical or unfit to care for other people but that's pretty rare uh, so i have i have some authority for sure but most of the time what i want my students and my supervisees to uh, embody is a notion is a notion that we're colleagues and that i'm here to help and that i'm not Uh, thinking necessarily about my hierarchical uh, place above them uh, because some people will treat me in a fearful way and it's not justified because again 99.999% of the time I'm an assistant to as you say the mission which is Uh, to make the world a better place. I, that's my mission. So my mission isn't to lord over people or to control people or to feel superior. My mission is to make the world a better place. And, and the, and presumably the uh, novice clinician has the, and the student has the exact same goal. And so we can work together on that. I don't have to, I don't have to boss them around to, to make the world a better place. We can you know, if anything, I'm their assistant as they go out into the world and and make the world a better place. And I, for some people they can manage that, that fairly well, but some people they're so terrified of authority as conditioned from childhood that it interferes with their learning. It interferes with their communication with me. They don't want to tell me things because they're afraid they're going to get in trouble. Um, They avoid asking me questions. And I I spent a good amount of time trying to you know, but it's hard because I have to convince people verbally, you know, I have to decondition them, uh, from a lifetime of being terrified of their professors and their bosses. And it's a hard thing to do. Is that what you're talking about, Ira?
1: Absolutely. You've really, um, given a very concrete example in my book, uh, Intelligent Disobedience. I cite some educational research, which, points out that there is a paradox in the role of the teacher in that you are the authority in the room (laughs) and yet your job is to help the people that you are developing through education to think for themselves (laughs) and um, to not rely on authority. It requires a certain amount of self-awareness, which clearly you have, and sounds like you know you're wrestling to how how do you how do you do this? How do you be the authority figure who does, in fact, probably if if you use grades, you know, give them grades, and yet deuce the uh, effect of your authority on the pedagogical dialogue. So it's It's very interesting because perhaps you might, in, in this instance, you might want to think about, and maybe you do something like this already, early in the curriculum, have a discussion about you know what is your role and how are you the authority, and how you are not the authority, and why um, and, and you understand it, you probably have multicultural uh, uh, classes. People come from different backgrounds. Where there uh, some of them are extremely high deference, where you never talk back to an older person, you never talk back to a parent, etc Some of them come from lower deference cultures. It can be useful to have a conversation up front acknowledging this and saying what the values and norms are in this classroom, and then you know carefully encouraging when you see someone who would normally not speak up, take a little risk and say something, (laughs) you know, really um, lift them up for having done that. It is a transformational relationship that, you know, that ideally will occur.
0: So you talk about intelligent disobedience. Did you coin that term?
1: No. Um, So my earlier work is based on a book that I wrote 25 years ago called The Courageous Follower, standing up to and for our leaders. So again, you you get the theme here, how how when we're not in the leader role, how do we partner with leaders in a supportive way, but also in a way where we're willing to speak truth to power when needed. I teach workshops on this. I often, because I'm Washington DC based, these workshops are often with uh, middle and senior level government uh, managers and executives, careerists, <clears throat> excuse me. One day I was teaching uh, about, we were talking about authority and how most of the time it makes sense to uh, comply with authority, but sometimes it doesn't. Why? The authority has wrong information, etc. and executing what they're telling you to do would have a harmful result you can see that so it would not be right to comply a woman in the class raised her hand and said that she had an example of that under the table well you can imagine that got my interest <laughs> what did she have under the table she had a dog under the table and she explained that the dog was being trained to be a guide dog for a blind person and for the first Uh, 16, 18 months of its life, it lived with her and her family to socialize it so it could sit quietly and unnoticed, unobtrusively under the table, and also so it learned to obey all the commands it would need to know. Then it went to a higher level trainer, she said, to teach it intelligent disobedience. i had never heard that term. I said, what is that? And she said, well, think about it. If the person is blind, gives a command, for example, to go forward, cross a street, and there's a quiet hybrid car coming around the corner, the dog must not obey. If it obeys, it will get them killed. Unless the dog can learn to differentiate between when to obey authority, which is most of the time, and when it must not, it can't be a guide dog. And at that point, I realized there was a wonderful metaphor here If we can teach dogs to differentiate this, why aren't we doing a better job with children and with our professional adults? So that was the genesis of my book on intelligent disobedience.
0: How do we teach children this intelligent disobedience?
1: Yes. Well, interestingly, I'm not an early childhood educator, but my research in writing Intelligent Disobedience almost inevitably took me back to how do we develop our children and it took me back to classroom uh, management how were teachers trained to manage their classrooms I'm talking about mainstream education you know there's some very good uh, exceptions to this rule like for example Montessori but on the whole I was stunned at the rigor with which teachers are changed but are trained to exact complete obedience in the classroom between walking to between classes etc of course then we we took that back even further to the home and i came up with some appalling examples of how young people obeyed authority when they should have and could have said no but their conditioning didn't permit them to so after i published this book so educators, uh, first in uh, Hong Kong, of all things, recognized the relationship of this, particularly to childhood safety. And I was invited to give a keynote speech to 400 educators from English-speaking schools in 24 Asian countries. From there, I, I had developed a simple methodology for how parents and caregivers could help children in a very, very simple way to differentiate when to obey, when not to obey, and how not to obey, because it's very, very hard uh, unless you give them a protocol. And for my inspiration, I'm going to ask you a question. You may or may not know the answer. Do you remember what to do if your clothes catch on fire?
0: Stop, drop, and roll.
1: Hey, you got it. When did you learn that?
0: I think when I was a child.
1: You know, right. We, you know, so young. And hopefully you haven't even ever had to apply it. No, either. But you still know what to do if you're close catch on fire. Why? Well, it's a very sim- simple mnemonic, stop, drop, and roll. And probably when you taught it, they actually had you practice it. And so therefore, we had quickly a kind of uh, neural pathways created that um, solidified this learning that you could then access I don't know how old you are but decades later I, so I uh, using that as as an example I developed a simple mnemonic children could be taught and uh, we found that in a couple of you know 30 minute sessions they remembered it and could apply it that's where one of the directions I'm going now with this material
0: so, so what's the mnemonic
1: Um, So the demonic is blink, think, choice, voice. Blink, think, make a choice, use your voice. Why? When when a child gets a, a command from an authority figure to do something that sounds wrong, the first reaction is startled, the startled response. Their eyes can go wide open. There's a bit of a brain freeze. You want me to do what? And You know, we use real life examples that are not uh, overly traumatic, like a coach um, telling a player to kick the opposing player, uh, that kind of thing. The child is going to have to override their initial shock. And by blinking, we find that they can quickly sort of gain a little bit of control so then they can sort of re with their thought process. Think, I'm told I have to listen to my coach, but coaches, it's wrong to hit people. Should I listen to my coach in this example? So now they have to make a choice. What am I going to do? Am I going to obey? Am I going to say no? Am I going to ask a, another adult, um, you know, to sort of referee on this? Um, and once they make their choice, then they have to use their voice. Um, and, you know, we know from, for example, from child uh, safety uh, uh, in response to sexual predators that you don't want the child to be saying, no, 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 don't do that. Um, that's, encur- you know, unfortunately encouraging. They have to be able to say, no, don't touch me that way. With non-traumatic examples, we build up their uh, ability to do this. And it's easy. I, and I, I developed a workbook. It's a real small workbook. It's a 24-page workbook, Most half of its pictures, for parents or other caregivers to use with their children. And I'm making it available as a free download at this time.
0: Where can people find that?
1: Yeah, people can either go to my uh, website, which is myname.com, and or if they remember they can go to blinkthinkchoicevoice.net. And either way, you can get to the free download. All I ask is that if people use it and they find they have successes with it, let me know about it. If they find problems with it and ideas that they've developed to improve it, I'd love to hear about that.
0: So what kind of example do you you give to children that don't bother the parents? (laughs)
1: Well, okay, now what you 've done is you 've implicitly raised a critical point. The parents must understand why their child is being taught intelligent disobedience and support it so, for example, an educator uh, vice principal in of one of the very respected academies in Hong Kong uh, decided to test out this methodology on her children who were 10 and 11 years old. She had about 180 students in those two grades. Before she did it, she sent a letter to every parent explaining that she was going to be teaching something new for child safety. This was to protect the child if an authority figure told them to do something that would be harmful to them. Once that was explained, not one single parent objected to it critical. Because then if the child demonstrates at home, and we cover this in the workbook, intelligent disobedience, even if they do it a little bit, you know, perhaps imperfectly, it's going to be very important to be supportive to develop and refine the capacity to use it in the right situation.
0: Great. So you, uh, so I, I mean, I'm just imagining examples that might be quite explicit like a predator or someone who is asking them to get into a car. Um, but if you're, but if you're trying to use less, less severe ones, like what, what kinds of, like I'm thinking like uh, a, a simple one would be your teacher tells you to line up to go to the lunchroom and to be quiet. And you see a fire in a dumpster nearby the classroom and you're supposed to be quiet, but you also, you know, so you're surprised, you blink, you think, you think, well, that can't be right. You know, there's not, fire isn't supposed to be the dumpster. I'm going to make a choice and break the rule by saying something and saying, by saying, hey, there, there is a fire in the dumpster and to break the rules in that moment. So I, I don't know if I'm, in, you know integrating what you're saying quite right
1: you are you're doing a very good job now and in fact parents have written me about almost that situation a man in high school saw was told it was a test and nobody was supposed to speak they weren't to get out of their seat etc you know trying to prevent cheating he saw out the window another student up on the roof and he was concerned that they were contemplating suicide so he got, and he, and he tried to say something to the teacher, and she shut him down. He got up, despite her saying, sit down, went to the phone, and called security. I mean, this is rare, but it happens. Now, what we want to try to do is start with simpler, more norm, normal kind of things. So, you know, you're, you're told um, you're at the crossing, and you're told, you know, it's okay to cross, but you see a car coming what do you do? You don't obey. You're on a um, soccer team and you know the rule that if it begins to thunder and lightning, everyone has to stop playing. Well, the coach is being extra competitive or something. They're, no, no, we're going to just play for a few more minutes. No, you do not have to obey. You see, it's up to the parent or the other caregiver whether, when and whether they go to more traumatic situations. Such as sexual predation, by the way, all parents tell their children to not get into a car with strangers, not walk away with strangers, etc. Everybody does that. what they don't do is prepare them for when it 's not a stranger, when it's an uncle, a teacher, a you know a priest, etc, and that, as we know, is where the vast majority. sexual predation occurs. So this is, you know, this is, I believe this is a a important, useful, realistic safety tool, but it can be taught in a non-traumatic way.
0: Yeah, I'm reminded of a, as as you're talking about this, I'm reminded of all these different moments of my childhood where this applies. I was taking driver's education at school And I had a very interesting teacher and what he would do is he would put his uh, coffee cup on the dashboard and he would say, if you knock my coffee cup off the dashboard, you flunk the class. You know, in other words, like drive safely, don't drive erratically. So I came to this um, point where I had to turn left on a busy street. And so there's oncoming traffic, right? And I see a window, but it doesn't seem big enough. For me to take a slow turn left, you know, I'd have to really press on the gas quickly and and accelerate quickly and risk knocking knocking his uh, coffee cup off of the uh, dashboard. And so I let a window go, and then another window comes, and I'm like, ah, it doesn't look big enough. And there's a lot of cars coming. I'll probably wait for the next one. And then a next window comes, and it's pretty small. And the teacher just yells at me, he goes, go. And so I, you know, j- you know, slammed on the gas, you know, turned left, and lo and behold, the coffee went flying into his lap. And
1: uh, <laughs> <serves him> right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> And he didn't, he didn't flunk me, but it just reminds me of, I guess as I'm talking about it, you know, right away, I remember learning from the experience whether it, you know, even though the teacher wasn't trying to teach me this, was authority doesn't always know what they're talking about.
1: Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a, a critical lesson because now you, you ratchet that up to workplace safety, workplace ethics. How do 5,000 employees at Wells Fargo succumb to the pressure and uh, wrong incentives to open up two or three million phony accounts uh, for clients? And there's a, there's something wrong in the relationship there, both from the authority level and, you know, from the follower level. So this is something that I believe, um, and, and then we ratchet up further to, you know, democratic citizenship. And, you know, we've seen that most of the horrors in history come when people comply with uh, very, very destructive regimes, this is not a simple problem because, as I said at the beginning, all cultures have to socialize their children to obey authority, and yet, the missing step is spending time in building that differentiation between the ninety five percent of the time you should and the five crucial percent of the time you shouldn 't We do it for guide dogs let's start doing it for children is, you know, that's my uh, mission, if you will.
0: And for adults, as you say, and of course, if we do it for children, that it'll generalize. And yes.
1: yes. Now, now let, let me say something about adults. We have some wonderful case histories in the uh, adult world. The, the most uh, significant being from the aviation industry. In the 1970s, there was a rash of fatal commercial crashes where hundreds of people would die. And the analysis found the captain was doing something wrong and another member of the crew saw it, but they didn't speak up assertively enough because of the uh, deference to rank. And the aviation industry realized they had to counteract that. And they instituted a program which is now called Crew Resource Management where all aviation crew military and civilian are put in simulators and when something goes wrong they have to act as a team to appropriately address it if the captain is not responding if the captain is ignoring the signals they are trained to assertively speak to the captain despite culture despite rank differential rank differential and in extremis, the protocol is to relieve the captain of command if he or she is not responding. And that improved safety so dramatically and has stayed, that safety record has maintained to this day. We're trying to, different industries are trying to transfer that with not as much success. For example, hospital surgery rooms are trying to, do this because sometimes it's the lowest orderly in the room that sees the surgeon made a mistake. They put in twelve sponges and they've only taken eleven out, and they're saying uh, close up the patient. Everybody in the room now has to vocalize uh, their assent to starting or, st- or completing a surgery. It's not having quite the same results, and more study needs to be done. But but this is very very applicable material, especially. Where uh, there are serious safety issues
0: yeah I'm, I'm, it, it makes me think of a lot of different things. I uh, imagine that if I was to casually talk about this with some of my colleagues, some of them would say at the university and even supervisors they would say well okay that's that's great, but you know if the pendulum swings too far, you have a group of underlings questioning everything I mean you know they'll say i have." I have students and supervisees who are questioning everything that I say, and as if they know what they're doing, and they don't. They're students. They're novices. They don't know yet, and they're acting like they do know in this entitled fashion. and And I need them to just uh, comply. I need them to understand that that they don't know what they're doing, and I and I do. They wouldn't put it in these words, but this is the sentiment that they're saying essentially. And certainly, I've been there before, um, but. So, so they might hear what you're saying and say, you know, okay, great. You know, on some level, of course, when there's a, a sponge left behind inside a body during a surgery, then yeah, absolutely. Someone needs to speak up, but, but I'm dealing with people that are speaking up way, way too much in, in a way that is comes from a, a place of entitlement, a place of um, specialness. And I need them to understand that they don't know what they're talking about. And, what I what I often think about that in a less refined way than I am now is, as you're talking is that it's not about telling people to comply. It's about helping people understand why they're complying. When Because for me, I, I don't know why, so I hear, a lot, I, I talk with a lot of my, you know, there's many professors at my university and sometimes when we get together, we talk shop and the conversation inevitably heads toward frustrations that. We're all having with students, <laughs> and one of the things that I often will hear is this sentiment of like students who don't know their place and are um, feel entitled and are pushing back too much. Although I struggle with other things as a professor, I don't really struggle with that one. You know, some of my female um, colleagues would say, "Well, it's because I'm male, and sexism at the workplace affects." authority. And when women try to assert authority, they get treated differently than when men do. And certainly I agree with that hundred percent, but some of my male colleagues will say similar things uh, as frustrated with, with people, students pushing back on their authority. It's always made me wonder like, well, how am I avoiding this problem? And I think one of the things is perhaps, I'm not quite sure, is that, I'm not super comfortable with authority myself anyway. And so as I exert it, I will often talk explicitly about it. And if there is ever a situation where a um, student feels like they want to question my authority, then I I look at it critically with them. I'm just like, yeah, you know, you're right. What gives me the right to tell you what to do? (laughs) I don't know. And then I explain things, you know, like, well, here's why I'm asserting this authority and here's why I have to. And here's my thinking about it. I I guess I just explain it more in this way that I assume that eventually they'll understand where I'm coming from rather than feeling as though I'm just asserting authority for authority's sake. And I find that a lot of authority don't necessarily do that. They just assert authority because they feel like they're supposed to, or maybe they do have good reasons, but they don't really have a good way of explaining. So I think there's another side to this, you know, the underlings need to, as you say, have a voice and they need, but they need to use that voice. Well, if the kid seeing the other kid on the roof, you know, decided, decided to start screaming and, you know, going crazy, you know, that's not going to be helpful, but, but the kid's like, look, I've, i just got to call security, you know, uh, that's a good use of voice. So we have to teach people that are under authority, how to navigate situations like that in the most mature functional way. But I think we also have to teach authority in terms of How do you assert your authority? How do you explain your authority? How do you deal with your authority? How do you temper your authority? How do you react when people push back on your authority? How do you look critically at those situations? Do you write about that as well?
1: I think uh, you're raising uh, very good points. First of all, intelligent disobedience is based on intelligent obedience. There is no such thing as intelligent disobedience if one is always fighting against uh, authority. Do you see what I mean? Uh, There's a a contract there that it's understood that there are certain legitimate uses of authority. So if the authority figure is legitimate, if they bring a, um, a certain amount of credentials and understanding, they deserve a baseline respect. And it's only if there's a specific order that's being given by that figure that would be, would have a harmful result if implemented that one exerts intelligent disobedience. Now, that's a little bit different from creating a culture of intellectual exploration. Your teaching methodology may be more Socratic. You don't you know want to be the authority, you want to be the person who helps them to develop their thinking, etc. That's really a different almost uh, role and skill set. Let's call it like classroom management, if you will, or workplace management. You know, in, in other words, in the workplace, yes, the manager is the one who can sign off or not sign off on the new initiative. A good manager will develop a culture where people are encouraged to speak up with their ideas because they may, in fact, have a better idea and, at the same time, understand that after being listened to respectfully and understood, the manager has the ultimate prerogative to go along with that suggestion or not to go along with it and the person being supervised, unless there's a safety or ethical issue, has an obligation to support the manager. So there there's an education on both ends, on how to better perform in, in the authority role, how to better perform in the, um, I call it the leader role and the follower role. And just wanna say that f- sometimes following is thought of pejoratively because it's misdefined in our culture as a personality type. We're not talking about that. We're talking about, about roles. The same person sometimes leads and sometimes follows. And how do they do both with integrity and skill, you know, is what my work is is all about. So I would encourage um, anyone in your audience who finds uh, this the subject of interest to look into either either one of my books, The Courageous Follower, or Intelligent Disobedience. By the way, a new book has also come out with the same title. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a good book, but it, it approaches it from a very different di- direction, uh, more like a project management transactional direction. Mine is more of a developmental and ethical, so the title of mine is Intelligent Disobedience, Doing right when what you're told to do is wrong. And again, I would encourage anyone who's more interested um, to go to my website, which is my name, Ira Chaleff, so I R A C H A L E 2 F, like Frank, at CS Charlie, uh, sorry, Ira uh, com. I was about to give my email. And um, hopefully, you know, they will find. Material that is relevant and adaptable to their own work. And if I can be of further help, then um, It's really easy to uh, Contact me.
0: Yeah, great. I'm glad you plug those things and I encourage people to do that
1: I'll say one other thing if I may in terms of plugging yeah, yeah. Um, I'm also interested in taking this link think choice voice methodology, which has anecdotal efficacy but it Ideally it would be subjected to the rigors of, of uh, more, you know, academic research with control models, et cetera. So I'm in various conversations looking for who might have the interest and the resources to take the material and put it through uh, rigorous testing because I, I think it's important enough that we really find out what about it uh, is working and how might it work better.
0: Yeah, I know we have a lot of doctoral students that are thinking about dissertations. And if you're thinking about such a thing, I think this would be a wonderful project to get involved in.
1: Yeah, perfect.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I've thought about the, my, following, my followership a lot in my life. I think it's because I'm half Japanese and Japanese culture has a very different followership culture than Americans do. In fact, one could say the direct opposite. My white side of of my life, shall we say, is uh, is is sort of that way. In a, in the United States, we consider being a follower to be a negative thing, but in Japan, to be a follower is, is a positive thing. Or at least there's a, I mean, certainly there's there's a positive thing to being a leader, a sensei. But there's also um, a, a great deal of pride taking uh, taken on um, on following, and. Yeah, even just as I say, following, you know, I am a follower. It it feels like such a derogatory term. But of course, that's ridiculous because we are in most of the hierarchies of our life. We are followers, you know,
1: we're both typically we're we're both in certain situations we lead and in others we follow. And again, it's how do we do each with integrity and strength?
0: That's what's important. Right. But, and to, but to just accept it instead of deny that, that these are things are happening. Like even just, just just even going to the grocery store, I I have to follow the lead of the cashier. I'm not in control. The cashier is in control. This is their turf. This is their cashier situation. I'm just here to follow. Uh, And I have to respect that. I have to know what, and generally people do, they generally know their role. Or when you get pulled over by a police officer or when you go to work i mean as you say most people exist in hierarchies most people have a boss of some kind and i've always felt like at my university i've been working there for i don't know 20 plus years what i've always found is that professors they they always think they're the top of the of the hierarchy uh you know pyramid every professor thinks of themselves as without a boss whereas i've always considered myself not at the top of the hierarchy because I'm not, (laughs) you know, but but professors like to think of themselves as being at the top of, and there would be these huge clashes between the administration of the university and the professors because the administration consider themselves, I think legitimately to be at the top of the hierarchy and the professors consider themselves to be at the top of the hierarchy time and time again, the administration would win the conflict because they ultimately have the authority and the professors don't. And they just, and there was this, all this strife around this, like how dare the, you know, the administration treat us this way. And I'm always sitting in the back of the room thinking like, well, there are bosses. We're not, We were hired by them to do a job. Now, you know, just because you're in control of your students or your your curriculum or something, or even your program, doesn't mean that you're in charge of everything. And in some ways, it's probably a good thing you're not in charge of everything because you have skills in being a professor. You don't have skills in administering and keeping this business afloat, which is actually another thing that the administrators were more concerned about and more savvy about than the professors ever were.
1: Yes, that's right. And universities are unique cultures um, in that respect. Uh, You know, what's what's really critical is respect for each role. Obviously, if the administration starts to give orders on uh, intellectual matters, uh, that's inappropriate. You know, if they give instructions on administrative matters, that's appropriate. They may not be the most welcome instruction, but again, they're accountable for the finances of the university, et cetera. So uh, a lot of this is centered around, we have to understand our common mission and what our role, each of our roles is, and work with mutual respect around that. And if we do that, then uh, the relationships to authority tend to uh, be less problematic.
0: Sure. Well- Ira, thanks for joining us. It's been fascinating. Perhaps we'll, we can have you back on to talk more about uh, this and also uh, Milgram experiments and Zimbardo and, and all that kind of stuff. Excellent. Thanks, Ira. You're very welcome. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Let us know what you think and take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.